Very well then, Bible doctrines. How you put on? We're going to do an introduction this evening. And then that will lead us into the communion. And God willing, every first Sunday evening then, we'll deal with a different doctrine. Before I go any further, I just want to talk about reading. Of course, the Bible alone is our authority. When I'm mentioning books, I'm not putting them on the same level as Scripture. But it's still good to be able to read to help us get deeper into the Word of God. So I've got a few books to show you here. The best introduction, in my opinion, is Packer, Concise Theology. Anything by Packer is worth reading. And this is one of his best books. Uh, so it's easy to read. Uh, none of the books I'm recommending tonight are unreadable. There is one well-known systematic theology that cannot be read cover to cover. Uh, you know what I'm referring to. Uh, but I want to mention books that are actually readable. And if you want to make a start, uh, this is the best primer on Christian doctrine. You may not agree with everything, uh, but it's still the best. And then, if you want to go a bit deeper, and they've put them into one volume, they were three volumes, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones did a series on Bible doctrines on Friday nights in Westminster Chapel. Were any of you there? Oh, Brian, you were there. It was before the series he did on Romans. And actually, after doing this series, he realized it was better to incorporate doctrine into the regular preaching of the Word. But this is great doctrines of the Bible. This I cannot recommend enough. It's very readable. It's very devotional as well. And it just shows how able Dr. Lloyd-Jones was. So that is definitely worth getting. It's not cheap. And then, if you want to go even deeper, this, in my view, is the best systematic theology that's been written recently. It's by Bob Lethem, who has preached in this church. Bob Lethem was lecturing in Bridgend, but I think he's moved now to the States or is about to move. And this really does get to grips uh, with uh, doctrine, with some of the developments in the last few decades. And what he does, unlike many other systematic theologies, he also grapples with some of the uh, non-reformed uh, uh, heritages. So it's well, well worth reading. Very, very well written. So, three questions I want to ask and answer tonight. First question, what are we going to be doing? Bible doctrines. Are you getting the EBGBs? That word doctrine is divisive, you say. Well, did you notice in our reading, the early church, what did they do? Act 2, verse 41, those who had received the Lord, they were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Imagine a church with 3,000. 
How much can this building hold? Nearly a thousand? Three times that. And what were they doing together? They were continually giving themselves, they were addicting themselves, first of all, to the apostles' doctrine. So you can't say that we shouldn't be doing doctrine. That's what the early church were doing first and foremost. And then let me give you another verse. Uh, Paul writing uh, to Timothy, who was a minister, very famous words these, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Why has God given us a Bible? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? Doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped to every good work. So if we don't get fed doctrine, we are going to be famished as Christians. So I hope you realize there's nothing divisive per se in looking at doctrines. It's something God has given to us. And then uh, one of the last letters to be written, Jude. This was towards the end of the first period of the church. So that simplicity that we had in Acts has become a bit more complicated. And towards the end of the first generation of the church, Jude, who was going to write a lovely letter about uh, salvation, <laughs> about the gospel, instead, in an emergency situation, had to write this one chapter letter and why was he writing? Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, that's what I wanted to do, yet I found it necessary to write and to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith. That's not our personal faith. It's for the truth, the faith objectively, for the collection of truths that were under attack. Doctrine. You see, you get people who claim to believe the gospel. The church was having those in Bible times, and they didn't believe the true gospel. You've had them ever since. And unless we define the gospel, we are going to be in trouble. And then what about Jesus Christ? He referred to the doctrine of the Pharisees. Beware the doctrine of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Am I quoting it right? So he's warning about false doctrine. And then after he preached one of his greatest sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, do you know what we're told? When Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. May God enable me not to be like the scribes in doing these Bible doctrines for that authority. So what are we doing? We are doing what the church was doing in Bible times. We are doing what God's word is commanded uh, to do to us. We are doing what the Lord Jesus himself was doing teaching doctrine what's doctrine doctrine is teaching it's a body of truth 
So that's the first question. Is that clear? Let's proceed to the second question. How are we going to do this? Well, it's Bible doctrine we are going to look at. Uh, you can read all sorts of teachings uh, about God, uh, but they're not often biblical. So we are going to be concentrating on the Bible. Now, I've got something very important to say here. I've been teaching doctrine in this church ever since I've been here. Andy, Nathan have been teaching doctrine. This morning we were looking at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, in particular the work of conviction of sin. Now, of course, we didn't call it that, but it's important for us to realize, as Dr. Martin came to see, that in the regular preaching of the word, doctrine is coming in. It's coming in by stealth. Didn't John Newton say, I like my Calvinism like cubes of sugar dissolved in a cup of tea? So whether you like it or not, you've been taught doctrine in the preaching. And Dr. Martin went on to say, there's a difference between preaching doctrine, which is what actually we are going to be doing on this uh, session, there's a difference between preaching doctrine and preaching doctrinally, which is what we seek to do in normal circumstances. Let me use this illustration. God hasn't given us a systematic theology to learn our doctrine. He's given us a Bible. So what you've got here is a collection of books. You've got history, you've got poetry, you've got letters, you've got apocalyptic writings, you've got prophecies. So the doctrine comes from these variety of books. Now, we are going to be looking at doctrine in a more concentrated way. It's like the body. Uh, you need the skeleton, don't you? You need the bones to keep the body together. That's what the doctrine is like. You don't see the bones. You can't see my skeleton. You see the person. And it's like that when it comes to doctrine, especially to systematic theology. It's like the skeleton. Without it, you've just got a jelly. But it's not an end in itself. It leads to the blessed person of Jesus Christ. So I'll be constantly using this phrase, Lord, lead us to the truth as it is in Jesus so what else are we going to be doing? Well, in looking at these different doctrines, we're going to be looking at each bone, as it were, if you think of the skeleton. Them bones. Uh, some bones are more important than others. Uh, for example, the doctrine of salvation is vital. Uh, there may be other doctrines that are more like the metatarsal bones in the foot. Very painful if you uh, break them, but they're not vital. So we're just looking at the bones. But remember, don't separate that from the person of Jesus Christ. But in looking at these doctrines, we're going to be doing something else. We're going to be doing theology. Ah, you say, I don't want to do theology. 
But you don't need to worry. Theology is a wonderful subject. It's the study of theos. What's theos? God. The study of God. Now, there are different ways of doing theology. I don't want to go into this too much. You've got natural theology. I was doing natural theology during my sabbatical. As I was climbing up Glyderfach, have you been up to the Glyderfs in Snowdonia? They are so spectacular. Uh, you've got natural theology there. Telling forth the power and the glory of God. Uh, maybe uh, one of the most famous natural theologians were the Romantic poets, William Wordsworth. Uh, in the Wye Valley, a few miles upstream from Tintern Abbey, looking at God's creation. And what did he write? I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts. So you can learn about God from the natural world. We're not going to be doing that. We're doing biblical doctrines, right? The heavens declare the glory of God? Yes, but it's... This law of the Lord, Psalm 19, that we're going to be focusing on. But then, there are different ways of getting your doctrine from the Bible. There's historical theology, biblical theology, practical theology. I could have you here all night talking about these things. Biblical theology is you look at the gradual unfolding of truths throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's like the sun rising. By the time you get to the New Testament, the sun has reached its zenith. You can do biblical theology. We'll do a bit of that, but that's not our main approach. You can do historical theology. You can look at how doctrine has developed throughout the last 2,000 years. Believe it or not, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, aren't we? We'll be looking at a bit of church history, but that's not our main approach. You can do practical theology. You can apply uh, the doctrine to specific situations. That's very important. We'll try and be practical, but the approach we are going to take is systematic theology. What's that, you ask? Well, you put different doctrines into a system, and we'll go through that system, right? Uh, now, we'll have to be careful that we don't become too academic. How did Packer put it? Um, Jesus said to Simon Peter, feed my sheep, which means lambs. He didn't say feed my giraffes. <laughs> Imagine trying to feed a giraffe. Feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. So if you want copies of the syllabus from the office, I'm sure uh, we can provide them. So systematic theology, we've got an introduction tonight. And then we're going to ask ourselves, what's the basis of our doctrine? Well, the basis is the Scriptures, isn't it? So that's the doctrine of Scripture. Let me throw in uh, some technical terms here. Bibliology. Bibliology. And then, what, what do we look at first when we look at uh, the doctrines? Well, it's the doctrine of God, surely. The person of God. Uh, the attributes of God. The creation, providence, the trinity. What do we call that? What's the technical term for that? That is theology proper. The study of God. God the Father. In a way, our hymn book has some of these sections in it. That's doctrinal, isn't it? The hymn book. And then after that, we'll look at the doctrine of man. Man's creation and the fall. 
the doctrine of man. Does anybody know what the technical term for that is? Anthropology. Anthropology. And then we look at the doctrine of Christ. What's that, the technical term? Christology. Excellent, Peter. Christology. And who can accuse us theologians of being dry as dust when you're looking at such things as the person of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection and ascension of Christ? And then that leads quite naturally to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. And the person of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the general work of the Holy Spirit, what we were looking at this morning. And then that, of course, leads to soteriology. Dear me, you say, what's that? That's the doctrine of salvation. And that's so glorious, effectual calling, regeneration, repentance and faith, justification by faith, union with Christ, adoption, sanctification. Now, I may be tripping these words off my tongue, but they're like uh, curry to me. This is a proper spiritual meal. It's not spiritual fast food. But don't worry, we'll take our time to go through these. And then we're not saved as individuals only. We're in a community. So you've got the doctrine of the church. Does anybody know what that is called? Ecclesiology. You're getting there, you see? Ecclesiology. What's the church? Not a building. What are the offices of the church? In Bible college, when we were given uh, that as an essay to write, describe the office of the minister, uh, one overseas student actually, seriously, wrote an essay on the plan of the minister's study. <laughs> but what, what, what's an elder? What's a pastor? What's a deacon? What's a member? What is the Lord's Supper about? What we'll be doing later. All of that is in ecclesiology. And then you've got eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. So that's how, God willing, we're going to do it. It should take us a few years. And then lastly, why, why are we doing this? Well, as I've already mentioned in the first points, it's biblical. It's what the Savior was doing. It's what the early church were involved in. We've got to defend the truth. We pray, don't we? Lord, protect our pulpits. What are we praying for protection from? Are, are we praying that uh, there won't be, um, I don't know, uh, uh, snakes in the pulpit or something? In India, they have to pray for protection in that regard. No, we don't mean that. We mean protect the truth. How can we pray that the truth will be protected if we can't define the truth? People claim to believe the gospel, but how can you know if they're believing the true gospel unless you define the gospel? You know, some of us have been accused of not preaching the gospel. Well, this is where doctrinal definitions come in. What is the truth? It can be defined. It's not some feeling. And in evangelism, it's important, isn't it? You and I must have a reason 
for the hope that is in us. We must be able to explain to people what we believe in. And what about growing as believers? Uh, how can we live as new men and women in Christ? We're not just doing something because it's traditional. When I was a boy, I would ask my parents, why do we have to do this? They would just say, because you have to. Well, we can't give people that answer in church. We can't treat you like children. We must know why we live as we do. It's based on doctrine. Let me just give you some verses here. I've already quoted Jude towards the end of the church. He wrote about the urgency to defend the truth. I'll come back to that in a minute. Let me give you this. This is the title for the series, I think. 1 Corinthians. The church in Corinth was a mess, wasn't it? They had life, but my, the life was just going everywhere. And what Paul wrote was this, Brethren, be not children in understanding. In malice be children, but in understanding be men. I think that's a good title for our series. In understanding be men. That will be grounded in the truth of the word. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Did, did you catch Storm Agnes? Uh, some of you said to me, we didn't uh, feel that much of a gale. Uh, if you were on the fifth floor uh, of a flat facing west, you certainly uh, heard the wind and the rain lashing against the window. And it's a bit like that with fads in the church over the centuries. They come and go like chaff in the wind. And Paul says, let's not be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine and cunning craftiness, whereby they lay in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, that's important, isn't it? Speaking the truth in love, you may grow up unto him in all things, even Christ. So what should be our qualifications to study doctrine? Why do we study it? We study it to be firm, to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us, to be able to protect the pulpits, what we believe in, to be able to grow in grace. You're not going to grow unless you are fed properly. Uh, we were talking lunchtime about fridges. I don't know why, uh, but if you look inside some people's fridges, there's not much food there. Well, how are they going to grow? When we look at the fridge of the Word of God, there's plenty of food here. There's meat, there's milk. There's all that we stand in need of. What should be our qualifications? You don't need to... I'm not saying a word against Bible colleges here, right? But you don't need to go to Bible college to be able to study doctrine. You do need one degree, BA, born again, born again. You won't understand doctrine unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. And as we progress into doctrine... What are we becoming more of? Not knowledge alone, because knowledge puffs up. 
It's more of Christ, more godliness. It was said of uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones again that there was just a sense of God about the man. Sense of God. Time is going, but let me just show you why it's so important that we study doctrine. I'll just give you some historical theology here. The early church started off with the simplicity of the truths of the gospel. And then even during the Bible times, there were people coming in. There were Judaizers creeping into the church in Galatia. And they were basically saying that faith alone in Christ wasn't enough. Faith plus. So the Apostle Paul had to correct that doctrine. And then by the time of Jude, by the time of the epistles of John, you had uh, Gnosticism. What was Gnosticism? A bit like the New Age teaching, a synchronism of all sorts of weird and wonderful views. And John had to write his epistle to say, this is false, this is true doctrine. And then after the Bible, it didn't stop there. You see, we have an enemy, and he wants to sow seeds of confusion as to what we believe. And in the early centuries of the church, you had well-meaning people having mixed views on the doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ. Arius, he was unclear about the divinity of Christ. So the church had to meet in councils, not like our church council now, but these were uh, bishops uh, and leaders from across uh, the then civilized world, and they were forced to do this. In response to false teaching, they had to define doctrine. And in communion, we'll be reciting the Apostles' Creed. That wasn't done in... Uh, an ivory tower. It was done out of necessity because of these unclear views over the person of Christ. There was one discussion. It was over one Greek word. The, not just the word, but the letter I. So they had to define the person of Christ. That's what the creeds do. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Trinity, the person of Christ. They are so rich in stating doctrine. And then there were centuries when the church was sound on those things. But error came in another guise. That's how the devil works. He doesn't always attack from the same direction. And so what happened in the medieval period? You had the church burying the plain teachings of Scripture with tradition. And by the time of Martin Luther, and even before then, with Savonarola, with Wycliffe, with Jan Hus... Uh, you had God raising up men to clear the rubble of tradition and to bring back especially the doctrine of salvation, justification by faith. What a revolution, as well as a revival, the Protestant Reformation was. We are what we are today in Western Europe because of that. And then, generations later, you had men like Calvin writing in his institutes. It started off as a little tract. I was looking at the tracts uh, as I was waiting for the start of the service. That's how Calvin started his institutes. He wanted to write to the king a tract. And it ended up being a two-volume systematic theology. If you've got the time, read it. Every other systematic theology since is based on it. Uh, you had 
the Puritans later on, formulating these teachings in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Do you know where that was done? In Westminster Hall. Westminster Hall. And then coming closer to our own little church here, we've got a Confession of Faith, 19th century, that's based on the Westminster Confession of Faith. That wasn't penned in Westminster Hall. It was penned in Aberystwyth, above the Woolworths. Well, there's no longer a Woolworths there. But if you go to Great Dark Gay Street in Aberystwyth, whatever building is there now, where the Woolworths was, I hope they haven't cancelled it, but there used to be a plaque above saying that this is where the Westminster Confession of Faith was used. It doesn't mention that, but the Calvinistic Methodist of Faith was done there under the leadership of John Elias, one of the greatest preachers. I'm always blessed. I'm not reading from the full statement, but when I read from Schedule 2 in the member, that's the best part. Um, after Norman, that's the best part of the members' meeting. These glorious doctrines of what we believe in. And then coming closer, coming closer. In the 20th century, the doctrine of the Bible was cast into doubt. People didn't believe this is the word of God. There was dry rot in the pulpits, not the normal dry rot, but this was spiritual dry rot. Preachers were uh, denying the person of Christ, denying justification by faith, denying the word of God. And our denomination, which we were in, they ditched the confession of faith and they came with a shorter statement of faith, which was so short that you did not have to be an evangelical believer to subscribe to it. And some of you will know what happened later on. Uh, there was a battle here, wasn't there? And I'm not just thinking now of those who came out, those who stayed in. I'm thinking of dear Hubert Clement, what a character he was. Hubert Clement stayed in to fight for the gospel. There were ministers who did not believe the gospel, and they were angry, angry if you preached the gospel. And there was a battle, wasn't there? And it led to this church and many other churches having to come out of the denomination. My friends, we're not thinking of something academic here. We're thinking of something that's the very lifeblood of the church. We're thinking of something on which the church stands or falls. The doctrine of the gospel. Yes, you say to me, doctrine is divisive. It's divisive if we become nitpickers when it comes to doctrine. But when doctrine is considered in its right sense, it's not divisive, it's unifying. Wasn't there an unity when people made a stand for the gospel in the 50s and 60s? Read Basil Howlett's book, 1966, and all of that. Have you read about what happened in North Wales? Gwilym Roberts in Caergurlaw. Was Peter Milsom involved? And others, the Cluid Five, they came out and made a stand. Unity in the gospel, not division. You see, a right understanding of doctrine helps you to realize what is vital from what is something where Christians have had different views throughout the ages. I trust we notice that in looking at methods of baptism. It wasn't something academic, was it, that caused some of you to have to sleep in this building? 
It wasn't something dry as dust theology which caused a minister like William Roberts having to give up his manse. People were, in effect, going to the stake over the doctrine of the gospel. Doctrine is vital. But may we look at these wonderful doctrines, not in order to win arguments, not in order to uh, beef up our particular conviction, but in order to bow our knees. That's what Bible doctrines should lead us to, to our knees. And we just say, my God, how wonderful you are. How wonderful. Well, time has gone. I just want to quote, if it's all right, uh, some Spurgeon. I was reading this over the summer and it challenged me. The first sermon Spurgeon preached in the New Park Street Chapel, which became the Metab, he said this, and I want to echo these words as we do this series. I would propose that the subject of the ministry in this house, as long as this pulpit shall stand, shall be Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I'm not ashamed to avow myself a Calvinistic Methodist. That's my conviction. But if I'm asked what is my creed, I reply, it is Jesus Christ. And then Spurgeon, he had a pastor's college, believe it or not. And he gave uh, an address to the men training for the ministry. And this is what he said once. Brothers, I like that. Ah, brothers. The Holy Spirit never comes to glorify us or to glorify a denomination or even to glorify, listen to this, a systematic arrangement of doctrines. He comes to glorify Christ. If we want to be blessed of him, we must preach in order to glorify Christ. Maybe we've set ourselves an impossible task to look at systematic as we can, at Bible doctrines, but to do it in order to be drawn closer to Christ in order that he might have all the glory. Let's go to communion, but before we do that, to prepare our hearts, let us sing together. Uh, this is another hymn about doctrine. It's a battle cry. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. And then I want to draw your attention to... Where is it? Verse 3, like a mighty army, moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body. We, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity, which talks about love. It's 714 if you like the hymn book.
So, Father in heaven, we thank thee that we are part of this mighty army, the church militant. Uh, we thank thee for those that have gone ahead of us, the church triumphant. But, Lord, we're still fighting, and help us not to fight little civil wars amongst ourselves, but may we fight the Lord's battles. Uh, Father, help us to hold that banner. Uh, the devil wants it to be destroyed, but the banner of truth, the banner of love, the banner that has the cross of Christ upon it. O oh Lord our God, help us to be men indeed in understanding and to have that uh, right, uh, holy uh, grasp of thy word. Uh, keep us, O oh Lord, keep this pulpit. We don't take it for granted, Lord. Uh, just may thy spirit brood over us, even now, in Jesus' name. Amen.